Hello and welcome to the Blair Upper Cervical Podcast, a show where we interview top Blair Upper Cervical chiropractors to glean their insights, tips, and passion. In each episode, your hosts, Dr. Kevin Pekka and Dr. John Stenberg, bring something unique and inspiring to help you grow and succeed. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Blair Technique Podcast. Dr. Susan Williams is our special guest this morning. Really excited to chat with her and hear about her story. Uh, Dr. Williams is in, you guys are in, um, what part of Georgia again? It's, it's actually Roswell, Roswell, Roswell just Georgia. outside of Atlanta. Awesome. With Dr. Christopher Lee It's uh, Sweet Life Chiropractic. That's where I got my first set of Blair x-rays. When I was in school as a student at Life there, I went up and Dr. Lee shot my first Blair views so that Dr. Charmaine Herman could give me my first Blair adjustment. So I love having those guys uh, local to the students there. But Dr. Williams, give us, a, give us a little bit about your background. Introduce yourself to the Blair Technique family and tell us how you got into chiropractic. Thank you, John. I'm so excited to be a part of this podcast and I'm very grateful that you're doing it. That's That's so cool to spread this message around. Um, I got into chiropractic secondary to massage. I was doing massage and also working in the pharmaceutical industry. And um, I I noticed that when I was doing massage, uh, if somebody had been to a chiropractor, they responded better to the massage. And if they hadn't, I could work on the same spot for an hour and it, it wouldn't release. Huh. So that was, that was my, um, that was the transition was from massage to chiropractic. And as far as Blair goes, um, I was going to a field doctor who studied with Blair and uh, his was the only adjustment I could hold. I was I had seen other field doctors. I had seen a, a upper cervical doctors, and I just wouldn't. I never held those adjustments. So huh. um, I was I was really appreciating the the care. And one day he said, "When I finished school, I went and did an internship with this guy named Blair." <laughs> never said the word before to me. And I thought, hmm, I want to know more about this. Yeah. <laughs> but in at that time, this was 96, I think, um, the internet wasn't as much of a thing as it is now. <laughs> <laughs> but I did. I did a search for Blair, and I found a post that John Hilpish had done oh. mentioning Blair. And I sent him an email and I said, you know, tell me more. I'd like to learn more about the Blair technique. And he said, we are doing a conference in Davenport in three weeks. You should come. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) And and I said, "Uh, uh, okay, I had Sky Miles. I got to Davenport. And that was it. Uh, I mean, once I knew more about it, uh, I I never looked 
anywhere else. It was it just made so much sense to me. That's the same thing everyone says. And I feel the same way. It just made so much sense, you know, eliminates so much of the like uh, questions with some other techniques that you learn where you're like, I don't know if I really get that or if I really buy that or if that's really what's happening. But you see a protractor view and you're like, okay, there it is. There it is. (laughs) Yeah. Do you know why now, uh, now that you're trained, why your adjustment held better? Was there like a multiple misalignment situation or weird angles or something like that? I... I don't know why Blair worked for me and the other upper cervical techniques didn't, other than the fact that, you know, Blair's the best. <laughs> <laughs> Say no more. Not yeah, biased that, at all. Well, it's a good point because we often get folks who have been to other upper cervical doctors, have seen, you know, been through different techniques. And I'll always ask them, how often were you needing to be adjusted? You know, give me an idea of like how well you were holding. And it's often like, well, I, I pretty much got adjusted every time. Or I could go, you know, it's been a couple of years and I can hold for two weeks now. And I'm like, well, let's try to get you a little bit farther along at this point. Obviously, you don't want to downplay, but and I'll just explain to him the mechanics of how we correct the upper neck is, you know, from a different point of view than that. So hopefully it's going to suit you a little bit better. And often that's the case. But, you know, I think that's the biomechanical approach of understanding how the atlas and axis actually move and being able to reverse engineer that with the Blair adjustment. I just don't see another option that, you know, does it in the way that we do. So I, I love it. I appreciate, I appreciate that. And that you had the experience as a patient connects with folks too. Well, don't get me wrong. I, I've referred to other upper cervical doctors and have nothing but respect for the other techniques. Uh, but my own personal experience, I, I held the Blair adjustment and I did not hold. And I was going to, uh, uh, someone who who knew what he was doing, I wasn't going to a hack. Uh, yeah, just a, uh, so it was it was not the practitioner; it was the the technique that was the difference. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there are instances where uh, you really got to credit the patient for trying another technique because it would be easy to just say, "Well, this doesn't work for me." You know, a chiropractic or upper cervical is not the right thing. Uh, but it's, you know, each person responds differently, which is makes it fun because it's, you know, we deal with people, not spines and, and people are interesting. So that's great. Okay. So you, you got into it early on in your chiropractic journey. So this wasn't yes. something that you came to like later in practice and you flipped your full spine practice to upper cervical. You got it from the beginning, which is, I think the better way. Um, so what happened after school? You know, give us an idea of what it was like being an upper cervical enthusiast through school and then looking at uh, what happens after. Well, um, in the dark ages when I was in school, <laughs> they didn't teach Blair at, at uh, any of the schools. And um, so I designed a research project while I was in school so that I could adjust Blair. I was involved with the research department and um, I was able to conduct this research study that allowed me to adjust patients using the Blair technique. And um, the first patient that I did as a student held his first adjustment for a month. Wow. That's awesome. (laughs) It is awesome. And then once I got into practice, um, I just became more and more and more. Every experience I had with patients 
just convinced me more and more that that this was the best way to approach the spine. Yeah, and it proves the point, which we've said on the podcast before, but I always like to reiterate that the technique is sound. So even if you don't have a million years of experience, you're going to get great results if you follow the steps and, and really are conscientious about how you do the technique. Right. Um, Pat Harkins gave me comfort at one of the conferences I went to because she said she wasn't very good at visualizing the misalignment and ha- what we do to correct it. And I'm not either. That's not a gift I have. Hmm. But what she said is because Dr. Blair set the steps out so carefully and so completely, we can be successful even though we don't have that same gift of being able to visualize what's happening. Well, and Dr. Fred Harkins is probably the best at that. So she's got like the polar extreme end of the spectrum, you know, right there at home. So uh, I have a lot of respect for those guys that, you know, have focused on this for so long. Because uh, he's explained concepts related to misalignments to me that I'm just like, I would have not never thought of it that way. You've obviously spent a lot of time thinking about how the Atlas moves, which is awesome. What was your uh, what was your first step after school? Because that's always a, like a really interesting transition time in life where you've got all this experience in school that is really transformative. But I think in a lot of ways, you got to learn how to not be a student, you know, after you get out of school. Um, what were the next steps for you? There's a lot of options. Where What path did you take? Well, for me, I didn't feel like I had a whole lot of options because at that time, nobody was really taking associates. I knew I I would have benefited from learning more uh, from a more experienced doctor, but I decided what I needed to do was start my own practice. And so even while I was in school, I got at the end of school, I Uh, found a place, I signed a lease, I started the build out. And gosh, a month after I finished school, I was practicing. That's got to be the quickest turnaround I've ever heard of. That's amazing. It was. My graduation was um, May 22nd. And in mid-April, I was I was doing it. That's awesome. So what what was your uh, thought process with starting up? Were you thinking about let me just get a small little tidy practice with the bare essentials, or did you want to kind of go full speed and get yourself built up to grow? Again, um, people, patients ask, why don't more people do Blair? And one of the barriers is that you have to have x-ray equipment and you have to have a certain setup that will allow you to take Blair films. So starting in your basement isn't really an option. <laughs> so I, I went all, all whole hog and uh, did, you know, the x-ray equipment, the, I don't know, I think it was 1700 square feet. I, I, I was, um, I jumped in with both feet. Yeah. Yeah, why not? If you're going to go that way anyway, you know, it's, you definitely don't want to cut corners on the clinical side of things, right? And it wasn't like you could just refer for CBCTs at that time or, yeah. you know, there wasn't field docs that, you know, you, you've got Dr. Lee there who takes f- films for other Blair docs in the area. It's 
now that there's options like that, it, you know, introduces a lot more opportunity for folks to kind of wade into practice uh, rather than just dive right in. But I respect that. And uh, without the internet and all that kind of thing, how'd you grow your practice? What was the, you know, primary method of getting new patients at that time? Was a lot of screenings and networking and stuff like that? Heck no. (laughs) I I have never been gifted at screenings. Um, It's just not one of my, one of my things I'm good at. Uh, I started networking, but that was several years later. I had a massage therapist that was working in my practice and he had a very well-established good practice. And he referred a lot of his his clients to me. And that's how I first got started was with his referrals. And um, then another chiropractor came and worked in my practice briefly. And she ended up having to leave practice because of health concerns. She referred her her patients to me. So it was other professionals referring to me that that got my got me started. Yeah. Yeah. And and the reason I like to ask is because there's so many different ways to build a practice, right? There's no cookie cutter process. There's all kinds of different strategies and it has to fit your personality, the types of folks you like to see, your community, your communication style, all those different things. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this, because you have the training in the massage world. When patients ask you can I get a massage? Should I have a massage? Or how do you help them think about when and how to implement something like a soft tissue approach? I think they work very well together. Obviously with my background, uh, that's where I'm coming from. I find that patients who get massage hold their adjustments better. Hmm. I don't start them getting massage right away. Right. I wouldn't do my first atlas adjustment and then have them go get a massage. But once they're relatively stable, stable with the um, with with their spine, then absolutely it helps so much with symptom relief uh-huh. and also with uh, holding the adjustment. Yeah, and that's obviously our main our main goal. So that's one of the things you got to, when you meet different massage therapists, you're going to find someone that jives with you and understands, you know, what your clinical goals are. So as to be complimentary, you know, rather than to upset what you're doing or, or sort of detract from it. Right. right. Don't poke around on the neck when I've just done an Atlas adjustment. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was getting at. And I've even seen folks with like a hot low back that went in for massage work, loosened up all that, all that muscle guarding and just got way worse. Because tell me, your body's trying to protect your spine from further injury. If you remove that that barrier, you're a little bit more vulnerable. So there is a timing aspect to it. I think that's important, and uh, you got to figure that out with with your own, you know, local professionals. And I found massage therapists are great patients. You know, they love they love it. They understand it. They hold their adjustments well. They've already done a lot of different you know types of approaches. So it's uh, it's an awesome, it's an awesome synergy. I guess that's the word I was looking for right, right, right. between and the two. great referral sources as well. Yeah. hundred percent. Are there other types of, um, practitioners that you like to work closely with other types of, uh, you know, maybe alternative therapies that you find are really complimentary. I would, I would love to work with a naturopath. I mm. think that's that we, we, appeal to the same kinds of people 
And um, uh, I'll tell you who else I think is a great referral source is hairdressers. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> they need the work, so they appreciate it. And they have developed a great relationship with their clients. I think that's, that's where your greatest referral sources come from, is people who have a deep relationship with others and see lots of people that they talk to. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's great advice. I think uh, if you can connect those dots, if they understand that you're doing the same thing, right, you're seeing people and talking to them and caring for them, right. you're going to have that in common. It, it removes that kind of barrier of like, is this chiropractor a little bit, you know, sketchy or can I trust them? Yeah. Are they going to take good care of my clients? Are they going to say or do anything weird with them? You know, right. and all that kind of stuff. Right. Let me ask you this. Since you didn't have a field doc kind of looking over your shoulder when you started out, how did you develop confidence and proficiency in Blair technique? Were there folks like Dr. Hillpish or folks that you met at the conference there that you stayed in touch with or troubleshooted with? How did you start to develop your skills? I went to seminars given by every, every Blair instructor that's smart that was teaching and m multiple times a year and multiple times with the same people and I would learn something from each one hmm. Dr. Hmm. Meg Banich in New Jersey she taught me some things about x-ray analysis that were just a different way of looking at it than I'd heard before hmm. um, Roger Morrison I took films to him he would look at my films and he would say oh you did this all wrong <laughs> like I thought that was pretty good <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and it was always so depressing and and humbling but yet at the same time that's how you learn is by being open to listening to what more experienced people have to say. So I learned this one from that one, this from that one. My first set of Blair um, seminars I went to were given by Weldon Munsley. And he mm -hmm. was, that, they were the la I believe they were the last uh, seminars he did. And um, he said some things that I still think about today. He he had a way of expressing about the double misalignment. He said, it's like a fish hook. It's not the big curve that gets the fish. It's the little hook that gets the fish. Oh, and so sometimes that, that small misalignment on the other side is the one that's causing the problems. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously it's stuck in my mind. Yeah. Tom Forrest always had great things to say about, about research, still does, still teaching. Um, so I, I, have, I have so much gratitude for the people that taught and helped me get better. Like I say, I, I took my films to every conference I went to, every seminar I went to, and I said, I'm having problems with this patient. What do you think? Mm -hmm. And that's, um, you know, if, if you're not doing the films right, you're not doing it. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's a good point. And we've talked a lot about slipping and checking and how these little, you know, like Dr. Muncy's point about the barb on the hook, the little things, 
you know, that you get sloppy with can make the difference for the patient's outcome as well. So I appreciate your humility in doing that. And then obviously you followed that path and became an advanced certified instructor. So you've returned the favor now and you're paying it forward uh, for the other docs and students. Um, So what have you learned as as a teacher of Blair Technique? Because I know a lot of folks say when you teach it, you almost kind of learn it a little bit better. And then you observe all these different, you know, situations and have to get creative with, with explaining. So what are some things you've learned as an instructor? I, um, when I, when I teach, I'm very hands-on. I, I want to make sure everybody feels cause I'm, cause I'm kinesthetic. I want to be, make sure everyone feels what, what the adjustment feels like. Um, I've seen in, in, as an instructor, I've seen where maybe our education process is failing students because when they come into the seminars, I find almost universally, um, they're not really, experienced or comfortable with either the leg check or the the thermography yeah the technique of it and how and how you have to be so consistent that's another thing Weldon Munsey just hammered consistent and persistent persistent that you that you have to do it exactly the same way um so you're getting good feedback, good answers, because if, because if you don't know whether or not the patient needs to be adjusted, uh, you're, <laughs> you're in trouble. Yeah. In trouble. Uh, the, being the best adjuster in the world doesn't help you if you cannot, um, if you can't know whether or not to adjust someone. Um, the other thing yeah. I've found as being an instructor is my making all the mistakes as a student (laughs) and a beginning practitioner helps me teach because because I can say um, uh, see this bad film I took (laughs) here's what causes it in the setup Hmm. so having made my mistakes and learned from them helps me to relate to the mistakes that the students are more likely to make. Sure. Yeah. And that's, you know, we all make the same ones, you know, as you're learning the technique, there's like a few things that are always going to trip you up. Uh, So it's, it's good to know that the person teaching you has gone through that path too, has gone along that journey of, of getting better in these detailed steps. Um, And I'm glad you made the point about the analysis because it's upper cervical work is more, analysis oriented than adjusting oriented, which is different than a lot of techniques. A lot of them are like, how are we going to move this bone? You know, that's different from X, Y, Z, but we are more about the timing of it, right? We want to do the adjustments when it's absolutely necessary. And when folks are still healing and adapting to the last adjustment we made, you don't want to screw that up. And so if you're kind of losing your, you know, losing your grip of the analytical part of it or the assessment part of it or the management part of it, it doesn't matter how great your adjustments are done at the wrong time. You know, it's, it can cause hurt as much as it could help when done at the right time. Um, Agreed. Yeah. With that, um, do you find that, 
when you teach students from different schools, I know you and I both went to life where there was, you know, a philosophy kind of infused within the curriculum, I would say. Mm -hmm. uh, do, you, do you also find a, a deficiency of philosophy with students? Because I think in upper cervical, we really want to be heavy on, you know, understanding why we're doing what we're doing uh, and how chiropractic philosophy contributes, you know, into how patients, uh, our understanding of how patients heal. Have you noticed a trend over the years as, as you dealt with, with chiropractors and chiropractic students related to philosophy? I, I can't say that I have only because when I teach, I start out very clearly saying, this is where I'm coming from. Yeah. And you yeah. may be in a different place and that's okay. Take what I'm saying from the place that I'm coming from, which is clear, solid, upper cervical, glare. Um, that's, that's where I'm at. So I start out by setting expectations of that's what you're going to hear here. Yeah. yeah, no, that's perfect. And with patients too, expectations is everything. So do you also talk with patients about some of these concepts? Do you uh, drop little comments about self-healing and these types of things when you're dealing with patients? Oh, first off, I'm saying my objective is for you to hold your adjustment and not need to be adjusted. And that's something that needs to be, that I think needs to be said immediately. Mm -hmm. So the patient celebrates when they don't need to be adjusted. Because otherwise, you know, especially if they've been to another kind of chiropractor, they might think, they need to be adjusted every time. And that's sometimes that's the hardest um, message to get across mm -hmm. if, they, if they've had that previous kind of experience. But so that's an expectation that I, I set in my initial consultation. My goal is for you to hold your adjustment so you don't need to be adjusted because that means your nervous system is working at its best. And, you know, that's the goal. That's the goal. Yeah. You're, the sooner, the better. I, I, I don't remember who said it to me first, but holding is healing. That's, yeah. that's where we're at. Yeah. Um, I, I don't tend to use a lot of jargon with patients. They don't, they don't care. They don't care. <laughs> yeah. They care that they are feeling better. That that's that's what that's what they're there for. Right. Um, almost almost universally. Some some people rarely you'll have someone walk in the door and say, I just want to know I'm healthy and be at my healthiest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, pain is the motivator, and that's what gets people in the door. So, like I say, I don't, and you know, people ask questions, I'll go deeper with them, but mostly I tend to stay away from jargon and just say, here's what I'm going to do. Let's, let's do it. Yeah, I think that's wise. There's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of ways that you can confuse people with some of these concepts. And what's more important than them hearing about chiropractic philosophy is them experiencing it, right? If we do, if we deliver the technique properly, they are going to live the benefits of the philosophy that we're, that we're talking about, whether or not they understand the jargon or have ever heard it or not, 
it's going to become a reality in their life, which is really our objective. So it's, it's important for us to have that internalized so that it keeps you focused and clear on what you're, what you're supposed to be doing every day with folks. Uh, but as far as, you know, how far that goes with the individual person, you know, I know that uh, Dr. Brooks, um, who, you know, we just uh, lost uh, recently, uh, Dr. Bob Brooks, a uh, NUCA practitioner, and he's trained lots of chiropractors on how to communicate these concepts. Uh-huh. And he says some folks just, they're always in that pain paradigm. And he's, you know, told the experience of patients that he'd been under care for 20 years and, you know, they were still just focused on feeling better. And it's just, that's as far as it goes with them. And that's totally fine. And then you have the other folks, they come in their second visit, you know, Dr. Hall, you know, when we did an uh, interview with him, he was talking about going to his follow-up visits with Dr. Forrest and, and Dr. Forrest has a very, you know, uh, concise and strict and regimented way of educating patients, which is great. And Dr. Hall's coming in, you know, for his follow-up appointments, his mind is blown because his whole life changed. And he's like, mm. why is this guy talking to me about my muscles and my posture? He's like, he, you know, it just changed my whole life. And so there's, you're going to have those, those folks, but those are, you know, exceptions, maybe not the rule. I, I think it's also a matter of style. Um, mm. And, and that you tend to attract people that respond to your style. So sure. my style is, is about connection and other people's styles are, are different. So yeah. um, as long as, as you said, as long as you deliver the goods, you're, you're doing your job. Good. And if you're not delivering the goods, I look to myself first. Mm. Where did I miss something on the x-ray analysis? Am I adjusting when I don't need to be? It's... I want to. I want to be the best, most. Um, I want to be the best instrument I can possibly be for delivering that the goods. Yeah, and that comes back to being proficient and sound in the technique and the analysis. Because if you don't have the right data, it's going to be really hard for you to go back and figure out and troubleshoot through why things aren't going the way you want if your scans are all inconsistent or you didn't post scan that day or you skipped it another day or you never got a good pattern in the first place, you know, or whatever, there's a million ways you can screw that up. Now you're just kind of aimless and hoping you're going to find your way back to, you know, what your, you know, the outcome that you're after. So this is my plug. Every podcast, go to a Blair seminar. If you haven't been in a year, you're overdue, get out there and and go, go again. Right. And it's awesome to just connect with your people and talk about some of this stuff. So I always get a ton out of Blair seminars, but uh, speaking of your style with case management and how Mm -hmm. you kind of work folks through, um, what's your approach to managing new patients and kind of how you program or set things up? Um, I'm pretty flexible about it, loose about it. Um, When I first started practice, I would um, set out, okay, I want you to come twice a week for this many weeks and once a week for that many weeks. And so this is what you can expect over the next 12 weeks. And um, I think that's, that's a perfectly legitimate way to approach practice. Our goal, of course, is to catch people as soon as they go out of adjustment or help support their their process if they're staying in in adjustment. Um, I'm a little more um, 
loosey goosey now. Uh, if I if I see someone first time and they say, I really can't get in again until next Monday, whatever next Monday looks like, I'll say, okay, that'll work. We'll make that work. And I um, that's just that's just how my practice has evolved. And I try to be accommodating yeah. to my patients. Right. Yeah. In, in modern day, you know, there's just so many constraints on folks, you know, whether it's schedules, everyone's overcommitted. Everyone's already kids. got kids I mean, there's and so hobbies much going and work. On. And yeah, it's, you know, I think it's great to keep the door open. I had a conversation with a patient yesterday who she's good and stable checking her periodically. She said, you know, I think I'll probably just call you when, you know, when I feel like I might need to come in and it could yeah. go one of two ways. Right. And that's where you got to know your people. It's like, you know, I could, you know, bear down on her and kind of go through the whole thing of like, well, you're going to deteriorate and blah, blah, blah. But I thought the most appropriate thing in the situation was just know you always have an open door here. Please don't suffer. Right. Exactly. We are your people, whether you're here on a structured plan or not, we're your mm -hmm. chiropractor. So just always understand that you can come when you need to. And I think that's totally fine. You know, for that situation, it's going to be the right fit. And I'm confident, you know, that she'll continue on, but it's one right. of those things that back to, like you said earlier, your style, if you're not an authoritative kind of like uh, style with the way no, that you not. manage your <laughs> clinic and your patients, mm -hmm. I think people can tell the difference. You know, we talked with uh, Dr. Judge and, you know, his previous like coaching experiences and things like that. It's, you know, his management style, we were talking about his team, his management style was just not what he was coached in. And he was just running into a lot of obstacles with trying to fit a square peg in a round hole, you know, him trying to emulate another right. style that just wasn't, you know, wasn't authentic to him. So, but these are all things you have to kind of learn, you know, as you go along and you, and you grow into your style. Cause I think as a student, you don't know what your style is. You're just trying to copy mm -hmm. someone else that you think is successful. So there's a lot of maturing that has to happen, you know, through the experience of practice. That's very wise. It is. Have you uh, engaged with coaching? Have you been the type of person that's had coaches throughout the years? I was, I had a, a business coach for a period of time. I've, I've never really done chiropractic coaching, mm -hmm. um, but about six years into practice, um, not quite, four years into practice, I realized that I was a great chiropractor, but a lousy business person. <laughs> and I, I, I needed to step up and spend the energy to become a good business person. So I went through a business coaching program and I found it to be enormously helpful because I had to grow as a person in order to be an effective business person. Hmm. I had to expand my comfort zone and in ways that I didn't learn how to do when I was in school. Hmm. I really never learned much about business when I was in school. It may be different now. I hope it is, but um, getting comfortable with asking for money was hard for me. It was real hard for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in school, 
all of your, if you want to say clinical experience up to that point is either free or deeply discounted. So you never have this interaction with a patient where there is an exchange, you know, that, that takes place or it happens at the front desk, but it's all, it's like 20 bucks a visit or something like that. So then everybody has this idea of like, they want to be successful and, you know, earn good money and have a value exchange with patients practice. But then you're sitting across the table and it's like, well, I never had to have this conversation before. (laughs) Palms are sweaty and all that stuff. So, right. How comfortable am I with saying this is my price? I wasn't. And, and um, so I had to, I had to get that. I had to get that way. Plus I had never done really any marketing. I told you, I started with referrals from um, other professionals and that's when I got into networking. That's when I got into um, going out and, and doing marketing with my own patients. In fact, um, I, I'd never really asked for a referral from my patients either. It was, it was, it really was a growth experience for me. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that you went outside of chiropractic to do that. You know, you're going to get such a different perspective. You know, we have our chiropractic bubble and we all kind of, uh, you know, know what that's like, you know, as far as like the practice management stuff, there's not too much out there that's innovative or that different. It's like variations on themes. Um, Is there anything else you learned from your, from your business coaching that you'd be interested in sharing with maybe young docs or students that are feeling like you were at that time where it was like, man, I really got to start leveling up, like you said, I got to set my game up in this business area. What, what advice would you give them to help start that path? Uh, managing people is the most difficult part of being a business owner. Hmm. And it's the most important part because if the business cycle should be, you, the bit, you take care of your employees, the employees take care of the customers, the customers take care of the business. Mm. And if you aren't managing people effectively, um, then your business is going to, is going to flounder. That's a great uh, cycle. I'm going to write that down here and include that in our notes, you know, for this episode, but understanding that cycle, because I think it's really easy, especially if you're type A, like a lot of us are, you know, kind of stats oriented, you know, and you've got all this stuff you track in your practice, you kind of jump to the end of that cycle, which is, you know, how do we maneuver these variables in the business, but you kind of skipped over the people part of it, you know, right. which is ultimately what all those stats are, right? Patient mm-hmm. visits per week. That's, those are people's lives that you're tallying up, right? So mm-hmm. I, I like that you made that point. It's an important thing to, to consider because if you haven't thought about it that way, you're going to be frustrated, you know, and maybe not know where there's room for improvement. I've learned my own personality style. I learned to recognize the personality styles of the people around me and so how to more effectively communicate. Mm -hmm. Instead of getting mad at somebody because they weren't doing what I wanted them to do, I had to say, okay, Mm -hmm. they're not doing what I want them to do because of something in my personality style or their personality style. Yeah. So that's an interesting thing about, you know, starting to practice sometimes, you know, in conversations with folks that are in associate positions, they're always griping about the stuff they don't like about, you know, their job. And it's like, 
I want to start my own practice, right? I don't, so I don't have to, I'm like, you got to do all that same stuff, right? right? If you don't like, you have to do all that in your own practice. But now everything's your fault. Like you said, it's like, right. you're the top of the food chain, understand what that means. And if you're willing to, you know, sacrifice some of those things to be the clinic director, or the clinic owner, or the lead doc, or whatever you want to call it, you know, then I think that's worth exploring. But if you're just frustrated at work, maybe you need to figure out how to get less frustrated, you know, whether it's a communication breakdown, like you're saying. Um, we talked with Dr. Christine Zapata about this, and she had a lot of uh, wisdom to offer as far as understanding, maybe if you're more of an associate type than a lead doc type, you know, there might be different personality types that lend themselves to thriving or being more successful in those different positions. Mm-hmm. So if fo- folks are interested in that conversation, go check out the podcast we did with her because it'll fill in some of the gaps and maybe help you think about that a little bit more uh, strategically. So that's, that's, that's a great resource. Um, I know in my case, I had, I had to change my recruitment style, my, because of my own personality flaws. Um, When I would interview somebody, I would, instantly love them and say oh you should come work here and then find out after a couple of weeks that they were functionally illiterate it was not not working yeah that's a problem (laughs) so I had to create a a multi-step interview process that would protect me from my own personality style so that's (laughs) That's good so you're, you're you're hedging the bets against your own you know, yep. your own like rose colored yep. glasses. <laughs> well, it's an interesting thing because it's like with patients, right? You don't really know your patients when you first meet them, especially if they're in pain or they're going through a health challenge. You're not seeing the real them, right? And it's probably true a lot of times with your interview process. It's like everyone's putting their best foot forward and they're projecting what right. they think you want to see, you know? So as far as like, what's it really going to be like after a period of time, that's if you can get to that sooner than later, uh, you're going to have a, a, a better, you're going to set the table for success for everybody a little bit better. Um, So with patients, for example, I always like to ask them, like, what do you want to accomplish? Not just like, how do you want to feel? What in your life do you want to see change? You know, why does this matter? What is it that you're, you know, it's being limited in your life? Because whether or not you feel 100%, you know, anytime soon, I want to know that you're seeing your life changing in the way that you're after. Um, And so the answer to the question might be, I want to be able to play golf with my son. mm Mm-hmm. I want to be faster on the tennis court. Yeah. <laughs> I want to be able to pick up my grandkids. The, those are the those are the real goals. And the interesting thing is if folks can't answer that question, you know, sometimes they're like, well, I mean, I don't know, my back hurts. It's like, well, you got to think about why this matters to you. Otherwise, we're going to get really, you know, lost in the weeds on the symptoms because they always fluctuate. So I think it's a good exercise, even if folks don't have an answer, it'll at least get them thinking. They should be thinking about that. If they don't even know what they're trying to accomplish, how are you going to help them get there? So point, good point. People are interesting. So um, now do you continue with personal business development? Is that something you've stayed interested in or that you're, you know, continue to kind of work on? Or do you feel like you've hit a pretty good rhythm with knowing yourself and how you like to practice? Well, I, I have been a part of a networking group and at, uh, right along since I started um, as a part of my business coaching program. And in that networking group, we have 
education on how to be a, net, a better networker, how to how and it includes self improvement and um, lifelong learning is one of my precepts that that I live by. So I wouldn't I don't do any formal coaching, but I I continue to work on myself as to be a better person, a better doctor, a better communicator, a, a better at uh, connecting with people. Yeah. Yeah. Networking is a great exercise, you know, as a new doc or someone that comes out of school, because I think you just lose touch with reality and like what people are thinking about or what they care mm -hmm. about or how to talk mm -hmm. to them. So you get in these, yeah, in you get school. in school. <laughs> I know it's you're surrounded by people that are like you and you just get so fixated on all the wrong stuff. But then you get out in the real world and you start, you know, you have to practice this exercise of like, t tell people what you do in 60 seconds or less. And it's like, yes. Well, uh, 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 well, no, you know, it's just like all of a sudden you, you realize like, okay, I've got a lot of stuff to work on. You know, you got a lot of communication errors and breakdowns that uh, you need to practice. Cause it's like you said, life and practice is about relationships, communication, expectations. I mean, there are just certain principles that apply across the board. And if you can figure out what those important things are for you and work on those, you can, you know, have a lot better time in life and practice, I feel like. Or at sure. least know at least know where you've got you know room for improvement. Um, if you could go back and uh, you know talk with your you know your your early chiropractor self, you know that one month after graduation in practice, you know doc, if you knowing what you know now, would you give yourself any advice? Is there anything that you would try to convey to yourself? Well, I I, I think you can already guess that one of the things I would say to my younger self is spend some time learning how to be a business person and honing those skills instead of only your chiropractic skills. It's um, very few of us have the luxury of walking in to work in the morning and just doing chiropractic all day long. Yeah. It, real yeah. life. It's real life. <laughs> real it's, life it's true yeah you're, you're so right and i think uh one of the you know i because i started practice after school like you did and one of the blessings of not knowing what you don't know is mm -hmm. you know you're kind of like ignorant enough to just keep going because you don't really know all the <laughs> stuff you're facing and i remember uh I, I can't remember who it was that told me you know i, I talked to him about oh, i'm gonna i'm gonna start a practice after school and they were like yeah we find that you know the people that start practices right away are equal parts ignorant and arrogant. And I was like, <laughs> that sounds like me. That's good. <laughs> like, yeah, but it's true. It's like, you almost just need enough. You, you almost need enough of a blind spot to just get going, you know? Right. And I was kind of like you and that I wanted to focus on technique and just like getting really clinically sound. Right. It's like, mm -hmm. let's just spend the time, you know, on developing that early on in practice so that, you know, you know, where you stand, you know, with your patients and what you have to offer. And then from there, you know, you can really kind of pour the gas on the business when you feel like you've got a good product to offer. But the fact is, in an early practice, you've got a lot of downtime. Yeah, that's true. So educate yourself on how to be a better business person while you're waiting for your next patient to walk in. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. And you can do the same with, you know, what I 
ended up doing when you're sitting there twiddling your thumbs, like, okay, where are these people coming from? You get, you figure out your schedule real quick. It's like, okay, we're going to put all of our people coming in at this time. Then I'm going to spend this time practicing my technique. And then I got to get out of here because that's where all the people are not in the office. So you, you figure that stuff out and you have enough, uh, you have enough humility. You end up, you know, kind of navigating your way towards, you know, a routine that's going to serve you and, and build your practice. But well, that's great. Um, do you have any uh, last words of encouragement or thoughts that you'd like to share with maybe young docs or students who are kind of, you know, a lot of the target, you know, for our conversations is trying to equip young docs and students to be successful. Is there anything you'd like to share from your experience? Could be practice related, personal development related, technique related. When I, when I took my first seminar from uh, Weldon Muncy, he did it in Lancaster, uh, California. So I was staying in a hotel after the first day, and it was a long, grueling day. I went back to my hotel room and I cried, literally bawled my eyes out because I wanted it so bad and it looked like it was so far away. I did not see how I could get from where I was to where I wanted to be, but I did. I did get there. I got to be a great Blair doctor. And the encouragement I would offer to young doctors is keep, stick with it, stay with it, um, get input from everybody you can and it'll come beautiful that's great advice yes stay the course and, and the Blair community is here to help we just want to see right. everybody succeed All right so mm -hmm. don't feel like you're isolated from the rest of us please reach out and we'll make sure that you can get in touch with Dr. Williams if you'd like if you're a student at life get connected with Dr. Williams and Dr. Lee sure. one way or another um, it's it's just always great to have someone in the field in your in your corner, you know, kind of help connect you with the real world. And if you're a doc that's interested in Blair technique, maybe you've felt like you slacked off a little bit, you're slipping, get connected with the Blair technique seminar. Um, yeah. If you're totally brand new to this and found it accidentally, and you're like, what are these people talking about with upper cervical care and all that kind of stuff? Do like Dr. Williams, jump in the deep end, just go to the conference uh, in October in Dallas, Texas. We're all going to be there. It'd be great to see you in person again, Dr. Williams. And uh, we really appreciate all that you've done for the Blair Society as an instructor and, uh, you know, kind of carrying the carrying the torch there in, in the metro Atlanta area with Dr. Lee. So look forward to seeing you again soon and appreciate you sharing your time and wisdom this morning. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Go Blair. That's <laughs> Bring it. Blair to the world. That's the rat. That's the battle cry. Thanks so much. We'll talk again soon. Appreciate you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or colleague. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes and check the show notes for links to our hosts, guests, and other relevant information. And head on over to www.blairchiropractic.com to find out more about Blair Upper Cervical Chiropractic or to find a doctor close to you. 
If you're a chiropractor or healthcare provider, you'll want to look at www.blairtechnique.com for information on upcoming events, professional development resources, and some very useful online training modules. You can also find a link to make a charitable donation, which is greatly needed to advance research. Until next time, be well.